0: All right, well, welcome mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and aunt and uncle and nice neighbor who came for parent commissioning. Glad you guys are here. Now, here's what we're hoping, guys. This is the first, the first of many moments and memories and milestones that we wanna share with these little kids, wasn't that beautiful? We're gonna, we're gonna dedicate over 80 kids across this weekend. Isn't that incredible? You can clap. All right, yes, get excited. All right, that's enough, that's enough. We gotta keep moving, okay, now. Now listen, okay, so we're all excited about that, but this is gonna be the first of, of many milestones. Here's what that means. Uh, we hope that all these kids trust Christ as their personal savior, and we're eager to celebrate the next milestone of conversion. And then we hope that they get baptized, and we wanna celebrate that milestone of baptism. And then we, 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 mom, dad, it's gonna be here. Before you know it, they're gonna graduate, and they're gonna go to college or trade school or into the workforce, and we're gonna celebrate sending them. But you know what we love to celebrate? We love to celebrate sending them on short-term mission trips. Guys, we have 113 people leaving on Saturday to head to Mississippi and Tennessee. It's our students going on their mission trips. Isn't this incredible? I know, I know, I know. All right, calm down, calm down. Okay, I know we're all excited. Now, listen, listen. okay. So here's why we love mission trips, because you've been told this before, okay? You probably said this, that you're going to be in the same place a year from today that you're at today, except for the experiences that you have and the people that you meet and the books that you read. And when they go on this mission trip, it's like a discipleship microwave, okay? They're gonna have unbelievable experiences and they're gonna meet people and a few of them may even read a book on the way. I don't know, okay? But it's gonna be incredible. And let me just, I need to honor, I know I'm a little biased, but I think that we have the greatest student leadership team. Okay, you wanna to have to understand this, that we have adults who they go to community group every week, okay, and they're busy schedule. And they, their, their schedule is just as busy as yours. And then on top of that, they go on Wednesday night and they serve every week our students, God bless them. And then they're taking their PTO to head on this mission trip. For those of you who don't work, that's time off, okay? That's vacation. So God bless them, guys. Here's what I'm gonna do. I want you to look at this. I'm gonna put all 113 names on the screen. I want you to see this. Okay, that's who's going. This is, We count people because people count, okay? Because because every number is a name and a face and a, and a son and a daughter. And so here's, in a minute, I'm gonna pray for this, uh, these students going on this mission trip. And I just want you to maybe look at one name and, and you can keep your eyes open during prayer, okay? Don't look at me though, that'd be awkward, okay? For us to make eye contact, okay? Um, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to just pick a name and you just pray for that person, okay? And I'm gonna pray for just the, the whole trip and, and then we're gonna get into Ephesians four, but let's take a moment because we believe that this is a significant moment. And when you go on a short term mission trip, you don't come back the same person. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we just pray for these students and the student leaders. And uh, they, whether, whether it is when they get in the van and they barrel down the road and the, whatever it is, 10, 12 hours of conversation. or whether it's the people they meet, the spiritual and financial poverty they see. In fact, we've heard stories before of students who go on these mission trips and they end up becoming Christians on the mission trip. They realize they were the mission field. They realize that they weren't Christians. And so Lord, there's, you're always doing 10,000 things that we don't know and can't see. And we just pray for these. We pray a unique blessing on the student leaders who are uniquely giving of their time and energy and resources to this next generation. We pray this in your name. And everyone said, amen. All right, I need to state the obvious just for a moment, okay? Okay, just for a moment. The obvious is this. Every person comes into the world naked. Like, where is he going to go with this? Okay, hold on. Or as my grandmother used to say, everybody is born in their birthday suit, okay? But as soon as you come out in your birthday suit, immediately clothes become important, right? I mean, the parents like, well, put a diaper and swaddle, put the swatting cloth on and get grandma's onesie that she just gave and, you know, put that on the baby. And, and clothes become really important. Put the bow in the hair, right? But then, like, when you're a really little kid, like, when you're one or two years old, like, I mean, all kids try to do is take their clothes off. You're like, what? But then you, you hit three or four, right? And what happens at three or four? You play dress up. This is actually like a very important developmental stage for kids, And you have the dress-up band, right? And I know I'm stereotyping, okay? But the girls get all the princess dresses and they dress up and all that kind of fairy tale stuff. And the boys start dressing up like ninjas and firefighters and police officers, right? And then you get a little bit older, you kinda get out of that phase and you start dressing like your favorite superhero, okay? Now, why am I talking about this? Because sometimes we need to see in kids what we can't see in ourselves which is clothing matters, and clothing does two things. Hear, hear this out for a second, because Paul's gonna talk about clothing today. Clothing tells other people something about you, and clothing tells you something about you. I'll explain. Uh, clothing, tell, like, clothing tells me, by the way, how to like interact with somebody, right? So when I'm going to my favorite, and I think your favorite fast food restaurant, Chick-fil-A, okay, when, you're, when we're there, I'm, I mean, I am interacting, this is a good way to think about it, I am interacting with a person, but why do they all wear the same uniform? Because what I'm actually interacting with is the uniform. It's like, I, you know, the, the, the Chick-fil-A worker's not gonna tell me his or her whole life. She's gonna say, Chick-fil-A sandwich, my pleasure. Okay, that's what they're gonna say. Because I'm interacting with the uniform. Sports teams have uniforms. You, you wear certain things depending on the event you go to, right? Ah, prom, I'll wear something. In a funeral, I'll wear something. In a wedding, I'll wear something. And when I go to court, I'll wear something, okay? <laughs> Now, this is very interesting though. Clothing doesn't just tell other people about us. That's why my, I grew up, my dad used to say, dress how you wanna be treated. So clothing tells other people something, but clothing tells you something. We actually know this, here, here, this is very interesting. They did this study where they gave two groups of people, this is a university study. They gave two groups of people white coats. They went to the first group, they said, guys, this is a very nice, very expensive doctor's coat. They put it on, okay? Over here, hey guys, this is just your generic painter's coat. When people don't mind getting messy and it's just what guys painting. They gave them the exact same tasks to do. The people who thought they were wearing a doctor's coat did a better job and were more careful. Clothing communicates something to you. So so I had this weird thing happen this week. Okay, I can't get into all the details right now with it. But basically I was invited to something where I had to be in a suit in a different city in the same day. So basically I couldn't pack it's a long story. I couldn't pack the suit, okay? So I show up at Charlotte Airport in a full suit. I didn't even I had to go buy this and get it tailored, okay? I didn't have a suit. So I am the only person. I mean, I was there for like an hour and a half. I am the only person. I mean, who wears a full suit in Charlotte Airport? I'm like a goofball, but I got to be honest with you guys. I was looking pretty good. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it fit me nice and the tie popped and I was like, you know, and I'm walking through the airport and I'm watching people watch me. And everybody's thinking something similar. It's like, who is this person? And they're thinking, some people were really thinking, are you important? And I started thinking, am I important? (laughs) That's the power of clothing. Now, why do we stop wearing certain clothes? Well, there's lots of reasons. two main reasons we stop wearing clothes. They stop fitting or they go out of fashion. And here's what Paul's gonna say today. This is the whole message. Paul's gonna say, your old clothes of the old man and the old self and the old life before Christ, they don't fit anymore. And so he's gonna use this imagery of clothing, and he's gonna say, you gotta take off the old clothes of the old man, and you gotta put on the new clothes. I want you to look at your neighbor. I want you to say, you need some new clothes. Go ahead, and say it. You know? And the wife, said, Get, the wife said, give me the credit card. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, listen, listen. So here's what he said. All right, we'll talk about it afterwards. Yeah, listen, okay. All right, so uh, I don't have too much time. Okay, so um, he's saying this, that your new life needs to show up in a new lifestyle. He's gonna say that your walk needs to show up in a new wardrobe. He's gonna say your change of heart needs to show up in new habits. Your new beliefs need to show up in new behaviors. That makes sense, right? Okay, you get it. So, what I want us to do today is we've got to kind of see this whole idea. Come with me. Look at verse 17. I want you to see this. He says this. Now, this I say, and testify in the Lord. You know how Paul gets intense every once in a while. He's saying, Look, guys, God is my witness, that's what he's saying. And and these are not my ideas, and I didn't discover this, and I didn't make this up. This is the word of God. Okay, so this is what he's saying. You must no longer walk. What does that mean? It means you used to walk this way. By the way, walk just means live. That's all he's saying. Okay, you can't live this way. Okay, well, what can I do? Hold on, let me see. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, the Gentiles. Okay, hold on. That doesn't, he's not saying like there's like some ethnic group or some culture that you can't be like. He's, the Gentiles represent the world and worldliness. So let's read it without that lines. Okay, here's what he's saying. You must no longer walk or live as the world does. How? In the futility of their mind. So here's, I want you to understand this. It's parents commissioning weekend and we're in the buckle of the Bible belt. So every time I just need to, every once in a while, I mean, at least once every, every other week, I kind of come up here and I go, hold on, let me just explain Christianity really quick to everybody. So that's what I'm gonna do right now. No one is born a believer no one comes into the world as a Christian and becoming a Christian this is really important it's a process and an event. The process is there's certain things you have to learn like you got to learn that God made you on purpose for a purpose you have to learn that and then you have to learn like you're sinful like really you like, you do things that God hates and you're sinful by nature and choice and you have to learn that and then you have to learn like, uh, Christ was your perfection in his life and your punishment in his death. And you have to learn that. And then, so yeah, okay, and then Jesus rose from the dead over Satan's sin and death. And you have to put personal trust and personal repentance in him. And you have to learn that. Now, you could learn that in 10 or 15 minutes. That happens every once in a while. There's a guy named Billy Graham. He's dead now. He's with the Lord. He used to go, believe it or not, it wasn't that long ago, actually, he used to fill stadiums. And he used to tell people those four things and he would do it in like 45 minutes and everyone would be like, I, I never heard that or I never put it all together. And then they'd walk down the aisle and the process and the event of becoming a Christian would happen. There, there's some of you, it's like your parents have been trying to tell you these things for like two decades. It's like, here's a Jesus Storybook Bible and here's another story and here's more scripture and here's a kid's ministry and here's a student ministry and here's all of our prayers and here's our devotional life. And all I'm trying to do is get you to get, understand those things so that you can have that process to have that event. Now here's what he's saying, when the event happens, Like, I'm one of those weird people who know the exact day it happened. March 28th, 2001, I became a Christian. I walked the aisle. (laughs) I, I prayed the prayer. I cried. I got a Bible. I did all of it. And my life, I'm 16. My life immediately changes. No one even needed to tell me. I mean, I started to read my Bible, but it's like, I just knew. I knew you don't do these certain things, and I stopped doing them. I mean, not perfectly, but progressively. And I knew there were certain things I knew ways I needed to talk and new ways I needed to relate and things I needed to stop doing and other things I needed to start doing. And this was really cool. No one told me. Because the Holy Spirit was inside of me. And he's saying, here's what he's saying. When you become a Christian, your life has to change. And that's the religious part of it. But here's the other part. And you want your life to change. And then he's saying this. Now, this is really, we got to talk just, okay, I know we got a lot of guests in here, so you're just going to have to listen to this part just for a second, guests. Um, I want to talk to just the people who say two cities churches are home. I want to talk about how do we. How do we live different and distinct lives? Because if you want to make a difference, you need to be different. That makes sense. Okay, so how do we do that in a world uh, that's very different than us? Like, how do we li- be in the world or not of the world? Well, let me tell you how to do it and how not to do it. Well, first, how not to do it. I'm gonna give you four ways not to do it and one way to do it real quick. This is helpful, I think. Okay, first of all, the way that you cannot interact with the world is through compromise. This is the, this is the project of theological or Protestant liberalism. This is the project of Protestant liberalism for the last 70 years and it doesn't work. And it's like, let's water down what we believe. Let's throw the pride flag out front. Let's act, let's, let's basically be the neighborhood rotary club. Do you know this? There's not one theologically liberal denomination in the world growing, obviously. It's like, well, there's no heaven and there's no hell and there's no judgment and there's no cross and everything's okay and everybody's okay and everything goes well for everybody forever. It's like, well, then I'm not showing up and tithing to that. And here's the thing, you will never, here's what you do. When you compromise, you just upset both God and the world. was <laughs> like, I didn't say that. Why are, you, why are you so embarrassed to say what I have said? And then the world's like, you'll never be liberal enough for us. There you go. Don't, be, don't compromise. Second one, Christianize. You, some of you, especially you homeschool families, you're gonna be tempted to do this. And here's why, because you're afraid, and I get why you're afraid, I get why you're afraid. The world's a scary place, and what's on Netflix, and what's on, you know, what's on Disney Plus, and I don't know, you know, and I get it. And there's a big, scary world out there, and you're afraid that it's gonna infect and influence your family, and I get it. But you don't wanna be Amish, right? The Amish are the classic example of Christianized bomb shelter, monastery mindset, right? If 1850 comes back, the Amish are ready, okay? Every Amish person needs to watch The Village, okay? Unfortunately, they don't have TV, okay? <laughs> That's a movie that M. Night Shyamalan did where he shows you, watch it. He, the whole idea of the movie is that basically sin is not out there, sin is in here. And there's no walled city you can build or time that you could think of. was 1850, the perfect time? Is there something godly about not having electricity? Guys, I experienced this Christianizing for the first time. I'm a brand new believer. I'm like a year in the Lord, just like a year in the Lord. And I go to the family Christian bookstore. You ever been to one of those? They don't exist anymore. But anyway, so I go to this family Christian bookstore. And I don't know if I was buying a Bible. I don't know if I was buying a book. I don't remember what I was buying. And I go up to the front counter and I'm checking out and on the counter are testaments. I'm like, do we need a Christian mint? Testaments? I'm like, what's wrong? I like my secular mints. I like my unbelieving mints. I mean, I, I don't need a Christian mint. What's happened to the world? Somebody thought this up. We can't Christianize. Uh, we also can't criticize. Criticize is I'm just angry, and that's, people get that way. They just get, and here's the thing. When you Christianize, you're afraid of the world. When you criticize, you're angry at the world. This is the independent fundamentalist churches. They're the ones who put fun in fundamentalism. Okay, yeah, no, they don't. Um, they are so angry at the world, and you know the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket, and all the good people are in here, and all the bad people are out there. And we can't have a posture toward the world of of anger. It's like we have to have the heart of Christ, who wept over Jerusalem. But then you can't, you can't compartmentalize your faith. That's another one. That, this is the temptation probably for most of us. Um, it's been said, there was a, a famous philosopher um, and seminary professor, and he, he said that the average Christian finds their Christian faith privately compelling but publicly irrelevant. You're doing your Bible recap. You're doing your devotion. You're with your community group. Maybe you're even in here right now, and you're like, this is interesting. This, But then you leave, and it was privately compelling but publicly irrelevant. No one knows you're a Christian at work except for you and Jesus. So what we're trying to do is not compartmentalize or Christianize or criticize or compromise. We're trying to be a counterculture, okay? I'm not just talking about that kind of coffee that I love, counterculture coffee, Counterculture is a way that you are in the world. It says, I'm not angry at you, world. I'm not apathetic at you, world. I'm not afraid of you. And what we want to do is we want to be in the world and not of the world. And what this means that we're going to be around you, but we're going to do money and sex and marriage and family and leadership and faith differently. Okay, so that's kind of the introduction. We have to have changed lives but live as a counterculture in the world. And then he tells us how to do this. The battle begins in your brain. Look here, look here, I'll show you this. Uh, Go back to verse 17, it says that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Okay, so let's talk about the mind for a second. What What does it mean if something's futile? If something's futile, it means it's not accomplishing the purpose for which it was created, some of you are familiar with the idea of a broken body. That makes sense. You're like, yeah, there's, yeah, our bodies break down, especially as we age. You know, Okay, there's broken bodies and there's broken brains. And he's saying, okay, the, the, the human brain, the human mind is not working the way God created it in the unbeliever. See, we're supposed to wake, like you're supposed to look at me and I'm supposed to look at you and I'm supposed to be like, oh my goodness. You guys are made in the image of God. I'm supposed to look at you and think about God. And you're supposed to look at me and think about God. And we're supposed to look at the creation and think about the creator, and we, our brains are broken, so we don't do that. So he says, but I want you to see what he says about the mind. Look here, this is, look at verse 18. He says, they're darkened in their understanding. So that's the second thing he says about the mind. Okay, third, they're alienated from the life of God because of ignorance, that's the mind again, that is in them due to the, oh, he's gonna go one level deep, due to their hardness of heart. So if you write in your Bible, you might wanna write this, psychology of unbelief. Paul's the first psychologist. Paul, because he has revelation, he's going to go, guys, hold on, hold on. Let Let me pull the curtain back, and let me show you behind the curtain what's called a psychology of unbelief. Why do people not believe in Jesus? Well, he says there's darkness of understanding, and then he says, well, they're ignorant, and then he says they've got a hard heart. Look at verse 19. They've become callous. Okay, so you're telling us twice about a hard heart? That's interesting. And they've given themselves up to sensuality and greedy and to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. By the way, it didn't say learn about Christ. Learn Christ, because Christ is alive. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught him as the truth is in Jesus. Okay, so we just got to talk about the mind just for a second here. Okay. Paul's telling us two things and we need to hold them in tension. The first is he's saying, okay, why don't people believe? Because they're ignorant. Now I've told you this before, but man's greatest problem, theologically speaking, is that he or she's ignorant. Uh, your greatest problem is not that you're going to hell for the unbeliever. It's not that you're a sinner. It's not that the wrath of God is on you. You're like, well, well that, that sounds like a big problem. No, your greatest problem is that you don't know those things. Ignorance, this is why preaching and teaching exists because ignorance is man's number one problem. But I know what you're thinking. You're like, but Pastor Kyle, I don't get it because I told my son. I told my son about the cross and I told my daughter about the resurrection and and I've shared Christ with them and they still don't believe, but they're not ignorant anymore. So what's going on there? Well, do you see what it says in verse 18 and 19 and 20? (sighs) Bad news. It's gonna get awkward for some of you who are not believers, just for a second. It's saying the reason you don't believe, it's it's because the mind is moral and you have a hardened calloused heart that doesn't wanna believe. Here, here's why this was important. Let's pick on the college students for a second. They're not here anyway, okay? They're all, they're all. we'll pick on them while they're not here. Okay, uh, I did college ministry for 10 years. Why do more college students not believe the gospel? I know what they'll tell you. They'll say, well, it's the problem of evil. It's the problem of suffering is what it is. It's that I, I'm really struggling with Darwinian atheistic evolution. It's that I'm just not convinced about the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's like, mm, I don't think so. Now let's give the devil his due. Maybe one or two percent of people really feel that way. Here's what most people are not saying: I still would, I still want to sleep with my girlfriend. I don't want to give up my sinful habits. I would like to remain the Lord of my life, but no one wants to say that. Guys, the best books on apologetics have already been written. Apologetics just means the defense of faith. They've all been written. There'll be more that'll come out. They've all been written. Because way before Netflix and way before social media, there were people way smarter than us that all they ever thought about were these questions. That's all they ever did. And all they did all their life was write unbelievable answers and there are answers to all those questions. And here's our job, Christians. Our job is to help people with their ignorance. God has to deal with the hard heart. Okay, what we hope for is repentance. That's what the mind needs. The mind needs repentance. Here's the modern word for repentance because repentance is kind of a religious word. So let me give you like a a modern word for repentance. Paradigm shift. You ever have a paradigm shift? Paradigm shift is I, I think differently about this now. And because I think differently about this now, I actually live and interact in the world differently, and it's like, that's repentance. Repentance is, uh, I no longer see men and women as sexual objects to be objectified. I now see them as image bearers of God who will live somewhere forever, people for whom Christ died, some of them my very brothers and sisters in Christ, and if I actually thought about him and her, him or her that way, that would really help me in my struggle with lust. Uh, We have to think differently. It's it's not just, uh, uh, you know, okay, I'm not coveting. No, 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 I, I, I now see that everything is God's and it's all stewardship on my part. So the first thing he says is we gotta work on our minds. The second thing he says is we gotta work on our relationships. Here, I'll show you this, here, turn with me. Verse 22, he says, put off the old, to put off your old self, see that's clothing. He's using the language of getting undressed and dressed which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, there it is again, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, look at this. Having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. So here's what I want you to know. For the rest of the time, from verse 25 to 30, okay? All he's going to do is talk about how we are to live in the context of relationships. And here's why, because your life, and you know this, your life is only as good or bad as the relationships in your life, right? Have you ever seen, and I've seen this and it's sad, have you ever seen dad's dying of dementia? That's terrible. When you see that happen, it could be mom, it could be dad, it could whatever. It's, it's heartbreaking and it's very hard for multiple reasons on a family. You know what's even worse? When all the siblings are fighting. Oh, it's like almost more than you can bear. It's like dad's dying and all of the horrible, toxic nature of these four siblings and everything they've not dealt with for 20 years is now coming up. It's like you can barely stand it. They're like fighting over the will and the inheritance as dad's there dying. That happens. Or, or how about this? I've seen, I've seen marriages that, I mean, marriages, if marriages are strong, and by the way, you want, I'm telling a lot of you are still very young. It's like, figure this out now because i i you do not want to be in your 50s stapling and duct taping your family together after 20 years of horrible decisions and learning how to relate. Okay. So what you want to do is you want to figure this out. And so you want to work on your marriage because i've seen families. I've seen families in the church and and you know things don't go well financially for them. This happens. The stock market goes sideways, people lose their jobs, and if people's marriages are fine, it's like we can handle this. It's like we're going to, you know, what do they say? Like, you know, a good marriage makes the good times twice as good and the bad times half as bad. But have you ever met someone who's got like a two out of 10 in their marriage? Whew. And their kid starts to rebel, or one of them gets cancer, or there's finance You can feel it right now. I can feel it as I'm talking to you. You know this. You've seen this happen, and you don't want that to happen to you. So you have to work on your relationships now. Now here's the principle for relationships. The principle for relationships, are relationships are built on trust and trust is built on truth. That's the principle for all relationships in your life. It's the principle for your relationship with your bank. How's that relationship work? The only way it works is because there's trust. The reason our nation is in trouble is because we don't trust the government and we don't trust the mainstream media anymore. Because a lot of us, I'm not saying maybe all, but a lot, a lot of people, let me just say it that way, a lot of people feel like, well, you lied to me. You lied to me for a long time, and I don't know that I can trust you. And by the way, how do you get trust back? I know how some of you are. Some of you are just like, someone breaks, and it's gonna happen. Your spouse is gonna break your trust, okay? And your friend is gonna break your trust, and your kid, is, it's its a teenage years, is gonna break your trust, and I know how some of you are. Well, you're gonna have to earn it back. And it's gonna take like five years and I'm gonna remind you all the time of how you broke my trust. It's like, please don't do that. Trust is earned and trust is given. So I'm going to, little by little, give you more trust. And hopefully, little by little, you're gonna earn more trust and the goal is to bring back the trust. Why? Because relationships move at the speed of trust. Have you ever met a family that said they can't make any decisions it's like, they can't, they can't move, they can't buy a house, they can't switch jobs, they can't send their kids to school. It's like, what's going on in this family? You guys can't make any decisions. It's like, oh, there's like no trust in this family. And everything turns into World War III every time they're gonna talk about something and everybody's questioning everybody else's motives. It's like, stop that. Churches are the worst. It's like this committee and that committee and it needs to go through this board and this elder and this deacon, it's like gross. There's no trust. He says we have to tell the truth. I want to just tell you one person I want to challenge you to tell the truth to. It's not your spouse. Some of you go, oh, thank goodness, okay. (sighs) I I want to challenge you to tell the truth to yourself. Some of you tell yourself you're okay and you're not okay. And you tell yourself that you don't have an addiction, and you do. And you tell yourself you don't drink too much, but you do. And you tell yourself your marriage is fine and it isn't. And you say your daughter's in a good place and she's not. And I want to just challenge you. I mean, go, go, go burn the journal afterwards. That's fine. Throw it in the fireplace afterwards. But I want to encourage you to write down and just be honest with yourself. Here's why. This is going to sound weird, but so that you can trust yourself how does that work? it's like well you what if you keep telling yourself you're going to do things and then you don't do them what happens? you don't trust you and you're like my head hurts how does that work it does ha- that's what happens and you need to be the first like look I, I you won't tell the truth to anybody else until you tell the truth to yourself okay you've got you've got to just get to that place where you say this is the real condition of my heart and my soul this is uh, you know I love money you may have to say that I'm selfish. I'm half the dad I should be. I'm not a very good wife. Okay, well, great. Now we can start the repentance. Now we can start the renewal. Notice there's a pattern that he uses here. He uses the same pattern every time. He says this. He says, don't do something. Do you see that? Don't tell lies. Then he says, do something. Tell the truth. And then he says, here's why you do it. Okay. Here's what I want you to know. That This is very interesting and good to know. This is actually how a child psychology, child developmental psychology works. Um, It's how we learn and grow is what I mean. Is that you always have to tell people what not to do before you can tell them what to do. Always. And it's actually why the, why are the 10 commandments all negative? You know, you ever read the 10 commandments? Like, was God having a bad day? I mean, don't do this and don't do that. And don't do this and don't do that. I mean, there's one positive, the fourth commandment. But nine of the 10 commandments are negative. What's up with that? It's because people need to be told what not to do before they can build on that. And they have to start living that. You have to start going, I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I don't do, great, great, great. And then on top of that, you can start building all the things that you can do. Here, I'll give you an example. Okay, so say Timmy somehow gets a fork. Timmy's three, I don't know how old Timmy is. Timmy gets a fork, and I don't know how he got a fork, and you don't know how he got a fork either, but Timmy's got this fork. And Timmy's about to stick the fork into an electrical outlet, okay? What do you say to Timmy? Timmy, do not stick anything in the outlet. Now, is that true well not technically cuz that's actually you do stick something in there. That's how you charge your phone or your computer or your iPad or you plug in your blender. But Timmy can't understand that. Right? You don't you can't go, Timmy, that's an electrical conductor. <laughs> <laughs> Only later once you've been told what not to do with something can you later be told what to do with something. You need to be told no adultery before you can get a Christian sexual ethic. We need to be told no. Now, what does Jesus do on the Sermon on the Mount? He expands and enhances all of the teaching of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And he expands both what we shouldn't do and it elongates on what we should do. Okay, here's the big idea. And and you gotta get this. You have to repent and then replace. If you only repent, what I mean by that is if you only stop doing things, you will be miserable. That's the religious spirit. Some of you have that spirit. You're miserable because your whole life, and sometimes mom gets like this with the kids. It's all about what we don't do in this house and what we don't watch in this house and what we don't say in this house and where we don't go in this house. It's like, get me out of that house. Okay, if you repent and you don't replace, you are going to be miserable, you are going to be bored, and you are going to be boring. You need to start saying, I am going to repent and then I'm replacing. So you know what, I can't, you, you go ahead and try not to you know, be greedy and envious and jealous, okay, and coveting. Go ahead and try to just take that off. It's like you can't, you have to replace it. You have to say, every time I get on Instagram, and I see somebody who's doing something, I'm gonna start rooting for them. I am am so going to rejoice with every person who's rejoicing. That's what I'm gonna do. I'm done done lusting. Instead, I'm starting to look at every person as an image bearer of God. I'm gonna stop being so greedy and I'm gonna start being the most generous version of myself, yes! That's what he's trying to get us up. I'm worried and I'm concerned that some of your lives are all about repenting without replacing. So we have to understand relationships, okay? But then we have to understand emotions. Part of what we put on is relationships, part of what we put on is emotions, look, he's gonna talk about angry, about getting angry. Here we go, look at this. Verse 26, be angry. Some of you just need to hear those first two words, be angry. Some of you are never angry about anything. And like in your wives and your kids are like, Dad, do you care about anything? I'd like to see you get angry every once in a while. I'd like to know there's somebody in there. Here's what he says: be angry and do not sin. Okay, well, I'll put that air back around and I'll explain that in a second. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Okay, here's what happened to some of you. Okay. You experienced unrighteous, sinful anger directed toward you or someone you love. This happens. Your ex did it. This happens. Or your dad was like that, especially when he drank. Or your grandfather, or your mother. She was a, You had the screaming, yelling, overly disciplinary mom. I don't know what you... You had the boss. I mean, just that terrible boss. And he got angry, and he took something away from you, and you didn't get the raise, and he just... And it's just like... And you told yourself. You said it. You said, oh, I'm never going to be angry. You know, Freud said that it's interesting that... There's two things we t- t- tend to not be able to control, our sexuality and our anger. And his observation was he thought that's why they showed up in our daydreams, in our, in our fantasies, and in our nightmares. Because we didn't know what to do with them. If you ever meet a person and they're like, I never get angry, it's like, you are a dangerous person. Because I know what that means. It means that you get passively aggressive and it means you don't know yourself, which is kind of scary. And it means that you use all the euphemisms for anger, right? I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated. It's like, eh, you're angry. Okay, we have to get, so some of you need to get angry. Here's why, because there's gonna, you need the energy. You need the rocket fuel power that comes from being angry to deal with some of the things that you're going to need to deal with in your life. Some of you need to get really angry that your marriage is still in the exact same place that it's been for five years and it's mostly your fault. You need to just have an angry conversation with yourself in love that you would even allow it to get there. I'm just like, I just feel like, especially these men today, weak, pathetic, and domesticated. Like, I, okay, you, so Leah Thomas, you know who Leah Thomas is? transgender woman swimmer, a.k.a. 6'4 male. Leah Thomas, I was watching about, this is all getting public now and UPenn's probably gonna get in big trouble and the NCAA is probably eventually gonna get in big trouble and they're gonna deserve everything that's coming to them. But here's what they did. They allowed a 6'4 male to shower in the woman's locker room with all of these women. And not just the U Penn team at the national champions, League, all the women. Leah Thomas, a 6'4 4 man, would go in there, and you know what I'm thinking. And I know it's complex, and I know people are afraid of losing their jobs, and people are afraid of the government. People, blah, blah, blah. It's like, where was Dad? I'm like, are you kidding me? Is there not one? I don't know how many girls were on that swim team. Did not one? Maybe they did, but did not one dad get angry enough at this? Just so you know, being indifferent to injustice is not a virtue. It's like, okay, you know, it needs to be controlled. Okay, this is why he says do not sin. Okay, here's what this means. He says do not let the sun go down in anger. You can't only always be angry. You need to understand that emotions singular, you'll see this. I'll give you examples. Singular emotions can overtake your life. And they can ruin the heart God gave you. The okay, you've you've seen the archetype before right of the angry The old man yelling to kids to get off his grass. That's a stereotype and an archetype for a reason. It's because it happens. People just, you'll see certain people in anger defines them. And you'll see certain men in lust, sadly, defines them. And a lot of times you'll meet a certain woman in sadness about something that happened a decade ago defines her. It's like she's trapped back in 2013 when she lost somebody. She can't move past it, or you'll meet other people, and they're just absolutely dominated by fear, and they can't get in the car, and they can't get on an airplane, and they can't go certain places in the city, and they're dominated by fear. He's saying that anger has a place, but it needs to be controlled, and it needs to be integrated. And one of the things he tells us is, don't let the sun go down in your anger. Here's what this means. I'm about to step on some toes of some marriages just for a second, okay? You can't sleep on the couch. I know this happens. It normally happens because the husband, usually, I'm stereotyping, he usually can get over things a little bit. He doesn't even know the wife's angry. (laughs) She's angry at me? I just thought you were just being unusually quiet today, you know? And you're laying in bed and usually the wife is like, I can't sleep. I'm still angry. And normally then the husband ends up going to sleep in the guest room or going to sleep on the couch and you know, again, that's kind of something you'll you'll watch on, on sitcoms and stuff. That's like a funny thing. And guys will joke about, it. I'm in the doghouse. And I'm the... Well, let me tell you what happens. So if you are, are angry at your spouse, and then you sleep in a different room, and then what happens is usually both of you wake up, you're like, well, okay, I feel better. Eight hours of sleep, I feel better. And kind of all the emotions have kind of gone down. And In a lot of cases, people never end up talking about what they need to talk about that they never dealt with, and then they went to sleep, and then guess what? If you do that 10 times, woe to your marriage. Because every once in a while, a guy or a girl will be like, "I I I don't even know why. We were just talking about who takes the dog out, and she exploded on me, or he exploded on me. It's like I can describe to you exactly what happened. She or he is not responding to you not taking the dog out. She and he is responding to the 15 things you have not dealt with over the last five months, and it all came out at once. This is why in verse 27 we get a warning. Here's what he says. Here's the warning. Deal with anger, he says, and give no opportunity to the devil. So you need to have a category, not just for the extraordinary demonic, but for the ordinary demonic. I know you've heard of the extraordinary demonic, right? The exorcism of Emily Rose, someone's head spinning. You know, There's goo on the walls, there's ghosts everywhere. You think of Jesus and his confrontation with Satan in the wilderness. Well, that is the extraordinary demonic. And then there's the ordinary demonic. This is the ordinary demonic. It's as a household where people go to bed, a household where mom and dad send a kid up to bed and they're angry with the kid and the kid's angry with them and it's not dealt with, is a demonic home. I don't know how else to understand this. It's a demonic home because that's exactly what Satan does. He never deals with things, and he's always bitter, and he's always angry. The, the ordinary demonic shows up in 1 Corinthians 7. It says, a husband and wife should give each other their conjugal sexual rights. And it says that if, if there's a sexless marriage, it is a demonic marriage. It's like, whoa, it's 1 Corinthians 7. So we have to deal with our mind. We have to deal with our relationships. We have to deal with our emotions. And we got to get to work, guys. Look what it says here. I'll show you this. Verse 28, here's what it says. Let the thief no longer steal. That's, again, what not to do. But rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands, his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So the first thing he says is don't steal. What is the number one way that you're going to be tempted to steal? To look like you're working instead of working. Right? How many of you, you you don't need to raise your hand, right? You're working from home, I know you are, wink, wink, okay. You know, yeah, you're working from home, it's working out really well for you. Okay, so, and and I know how this works in the office, right? The the person who looks the most stressed out, everybody thinks working. So your boss walks by and you're just like, oh gosh. And then he leaves or she leaves and you get back on Facebook. Okay, we know how this works. Part of the way that you steal is by looking like you're working instead of actually working, okay? Uh, Some of you steal by using your friend's Netflix username and (laughs) passcode. Gotcha, okay. Some of you steal by cheating on your taxes. There's different ways. Okay. But here's what you do when you steal. You take from somebody else and you make things more difficult on them. Here's one of the principles. Stop making things worse. That'll be part of if you have that honest conversation with yourself. You've got to ask, do I make things worse? Do I come home from work and I just partly because I'm bitter and partly because I'm resentful and whatever, do I make things worse? Does my husband get home from work and I just decide I'm kind of angry that you didn't have to be with me at the kids all day, and so why don't, why don't I just make things worse when you get home? So people do that all the time. They aim down instead of aiming up. He says, instead, what if you worked? Now, how about this? I know this is a novel idea for a lot of people. It's like work, you know? So, okay, well, God is. God shows up in Genesis one as the great worker, very busy. He had a very busy first week creating the universe. The first thing that we're told about God is he's a worker. And then the first thing he does is make us in his image. What does that mean? Part of being made in the image of God is you are meant to work. And we have to tell young people this especially. Labor creates leisure. Young people get this backwards. They want leisure without labor. They want leisure before labor. It does not work that way. Labor creates leisure we were meant to work. Have you ever seen, this normally happens to guys, you ever see a guy retire and he didn't retire to hang out with his grandkids and he didn't retire to work on some nonprofits and he didn't retire because he had like four hobbies that are actually making him better and building relationships. Like he just had enough money and so he retired and he becomes a shadow and shell of himself. You seen this guy? I know several of these guys. They eat too much, they drink too much, they sleep too much, they watch too much Netflix. Netflix. Work is that which regulates your life and orders your life, okay? The first reason we work is, well, we're made in God's image, okay? And, and by the way, work isn't curse. It's pre-fall, pre-sin, works given to us. Now, the Bible says that the ground now works against us when we work, and here's why. God wanted to say this to us. He wanted to communicate something to us. If, if you start working, you'll understand the gospel more because everything that you're trying to create will rebel against you, and God goes, ha-ha! <laughs> now you know what it's like to be me. Everything you try to create rebels against you. That's what you're like to me. You'll understand God better. Very hard to understand the gospel if you're not working. Secondly, the reason we work is because the natural state of man is deprivation. You have to say this today because, look, all the lights are on. Isn't that amazing? And you're in a temperature-controlled room, and you go to Costco or Trader Joe's or you know, Whole Foods, and you just can't believe everything you'd ever want is just right there, and you can just grab it right away and put it, in your, and it'll be there tomorrow too, and it'll be there next week, and it's just unbelievable. You have freezers, and you just can't even understand that mo- for most of human history, it was there was a very simple line that if I do not work, I do not eat, which is exactly what the apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3. He says, if an able-bodied man won't work, then don't let him eat. Yikes. Now, here's what you've been told, and this is just a lie. I want to tell you this. You've been told that You know, the history of humanity is that we've just all been oppressed by other people. Or if you go to certain universities, they'll tell you something like this, which is not true, that they'll say, okay, here's, let me tell you, let me explain the whole history of humanity in a sentence. Men have oppressed women. It's like, okay, that is, that is not the story of humanity. Do you want to know the story of humanity in a sentence? Nature oppressed all of us for thousands of years. That's the story The natural condition of humanity for almost all of humanity is freezing and starving. And we had to do everything we can and work harder than probably any of us have ever worked constantly to bring us out of that. That's how you can get on an airplane. That's why you have a $10,000 iPhone in your back pocket. That's what it should cost. We have the internet. We have cars. It's unbelievable. Everywhere you go all the time, you control the temperature. How did all that happen? Work. Okay, third reason, and young people especially need to hear this, really need to hear this. Work is a window into the rest of your life. Like I'm telling you, please hear this. If you will get good at something, the whole world will open up to you. I promise you, it doesn't even matter what. It's like be an unbelievable plumber and the whole world will open up to you. You'll be like, I don't even know how I got here. I don't even know how I know these people. I don't even know how I have all these relationships. Be a great teacher and the world will open up to you. Be a great financial advisor and watch the whole world open up. It's like be a good banker. It doesn't even matter. Pick any career possible and get unbelievably good at it. And you could do that. And then then he says this, and then you'd have something to share with other people, and wouldn't that be great? Like, I think it's amazing. Don't you think it's amazing? So think of a family of four. Some families of four. I would say many in our church. One person works five days a week and provides for four people for seven days a week. That's amazing. Did you hear what I said? One person works five days a week, provides for four people for seven days a week. What? It's amazing. What if you just did that the rest of your life? What if you just said, okay, well, here's what you want to become. Really, you do want to become this. You want to become a useful person. It's like, well, here I, because by the way, it says you'll have something to share. What does it mean, money? Okay, that's so low, low, low resolution. No, not just money. Yeah, you'd have, if, I, if I'm good at something, yes, I will find myself having excess discretionary income. That'll be very nice. But even more than that, I'll have a bunch of skills to help people with. And I'll have done something difficult myself. And so I'll be like, yeah, man, and let me tell you how to buy your first house. And let me explain compounding interest to you. And maybe you're good enough that you could start a business, then you could give somebody a job, and that would be really helpful. Okay, so he basically says, get your mind right, get your relationships right, get your emotions right, get your work-life balance right. And then finally, get your words right. This is where we got to (laughs) end. Here's what he says. Let no corrupting talk that's diseased uh, or, or rotten come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Okay, now here's what religious people do. I'm afraid that some of you are religious. Is religious people read this passage and they go, ha ha. There are a couple words I will never say. There's a couple four letter words and I won't say them. In fact, in a religious home, normally what they do is they say, don't say these words and don't say words that sound like these words. Right? Don't say darn, because darn sounds like, exactly. You shouldn't say those words. There's other places that talk about coarse speech, okay? That's not what this is talking about here. Because here's the thing, religious people, moralistic people, there's certain words they'll never say while they belittle and demean you all day long. And they feel really good about themselves because they would never say those words that are on that one show that you shouldn't watch. Here's the corrupting talk that most of us have, gossip. You know what gossip is? It's when you confess other people's sins. You're supposed to confess your sins, that's great. You should confess your sins to just a small amount of people okay? that you trust, got it. Gossip is when you confess other people's sins. You know how we do this in the church world? Through the prayer chain. Pray for Sally's marriage. It's not going well. Forward to all. Instead of corrupting talk, and it can come in slander, right? Women are the best at this. Reputation destruction. I will find out something that's strange about you. I will find something that's not right with you. I will will amplify one of your imperfections. That's what I'll do. And I will make sure everybody knows it. And I will leverage my social media accounts to follow you home while doing it. It's reputation destruction. What if instead of those things, what if you did talk that built up. Let me give you four types of talk that build up as we close. Because do you want to build your marriage? Do you wanna build your family? Do you wanna build your business? Do you wanna build your friendships? And you have to have these four types of talk. First, encouragement, right? Some of you are just so negative, your kids and your spouse wonder, do they do anything right? Because you're just so great at just telling them everything they do wrong. And part of the reason is because you and all of us, we're more sensitive to negative emotion than we are to positive emotion. So we're more bothered by something bad than we are delighted by something good of the same measure. So you know, you know, your wife could come home and she cleaned the whole house and you're like, well, why didn't you vacuum this one part? It's like, what's wrong with us? Start encouraging. People need so little encouragement. They really do. Like your kids are dying for two things. Dad, will you pay attention to me and will you affirm me? Will you tell me? I'm trying to figure my way out in this world. And could you notice when I do something well, that's what you wanna do. What you wanna do this week is I wanna catch people doing the right thing. And here's the most amazing thing ever. If you catch your wife doing the right thing and you tell her that was awesome and you liked when she did that, guess what? She'll do it again. And so will he. Secondly, gratitude. You got to just be more thankful. Some of you, if you told your spouse you were thankful for them, if you told your kids you were thankful for them, they'd be like, Dad, what's wrong? What's wrong? Are you sick? Did something happen? Because it would be so strange, and it will feel so uncomfortable for you to even do it. You're going to struggle to get it out. But we need an atmosphere of gratitude and thankfulness. How about this? Constructive feedback. I know this one's not as soft. People need feedback. I am still surprised and saddened by I meet people all the time. We have people on our volunteer teams, or we have people in certain environments, or we have people who apply for jobs, and they're so obviously not good at something that no one's ever told them, which is very uncomfortable for me. You know, you don't want to meet somebody, and they're old, and they don't know who they are. It's like you meet somebody, you like, you're 60, and you're not good at this at all, and no one ever told you, and I don't know how that happened, Because if someone would have told you this at 20, then you could have gone on a different path and trajectory in your life, but nobody loved you enough to tell you you weren't good at something. So know that that's loving when people do that with a loving heart. Finally, what about just wisdom? We need wisdom, we need practical advice. I mean, how many of us, right? We had good mom and good dad, but we got in the world like, why didn't anyone ever tell me about these things, right? It's like, we need help in our lives. If you want your marriage to grow, if you want your family to grow, You've got to use words that build up. And if you will do those four things, you would wake up in six months and your family would feel so much different than it does right now. And here's why. He gives us the final reason. Here it is. It's just, this is how he ends. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He's saying this, and I don't understand this. There's a mystery in this. He's saying the great God of the universe, somehow, I don't know why, but somehow he's so tied himself in with you, relationally and emotionally and personally, that you can actually grieve God by sinning. You can make the Holy Spirit sad when you sin. It's like, what? Yeah, the Bible says three things you can do to the Spirit. You can grieve Him, you can quench Him, and you can resist Him, did you know that? And here's how you grieve the Holy Spirit. You grieve the Holy Spirit when you do sinful things. It's like, you start having that corrupting talk, it's like, you're just, you're just grieving the Holy Spirit. When you're stealing and you're not working hard, it's like you're grieving the Holy Spirit. But it's interesting, the Bible also says you can quench the Holy Spirit. Now, what's that? Now, people talk about that. Why why grieve? Why quench? What's the difference? Quench is when you don't let the power of the Holy Spirit work through you to do the right things. Listen, the Holy Spirit, you're quenching the Holy Spirit by not being encouraging to your kids. You're quenching the Holy Spirit by not being more generous. You're quenching the Holy Spirit by not working hard. But some of you, it's it's Parent Commission Weekend and I thought about you. Look, some of you, I'm afraid you've been coming around or maybe this is your first time here and the Bible says you can resist the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? You can feel the Holy Spirit coming and saying, I want you to believe, I want you to repent and you can resist. Now this is interesting. God says we have to come to him on his terms on what his son has done, but not just his terms, in his timing. You ever wonder why does the Bible say today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, why? because he doesn't come knocking every day. So if you're here today and you feel like the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, you say, I've never had that life change. Today I had the process and it's time for me to have an event. I'm gonna give you a second when we pray just to give your life to Christ. For the rest of us, I want us to look toward what he said, you're sealed for the day of redemption. Here's what that means. Here's the hopeful word Paul ends on. He's saying, look, it's gonna be a lot of work to put these clothes on and and to try to become the godliest version of yourself. But guess what happens at the day of redemption? When you die or when Christ returns, guess what happens? What you've been working toward for 10 decades, Jesus Christ completes in the twinkling of an eye. (laughs) It's like, you've been trying to be the godliest version. I'm I'm going to give you glorification. You're going to get to be just the godliest version, the sinless version of yourself in the twinkling of an eye. And it's there that we're not going to be wearing any old clothes or new clothes, but instead Christ is going to put on us the robe of his own righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, if we're in here right now, and we would just, we say, look, I am... I have resisted the Holy Spirit. I just want to give people just a chance to say, ah, look, I want to give Jesus my sin and myself. I don't want to resist you. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock, but we have to open up. Lord, you draw, but we have to decide. Lord, you call us, but we, we've we got to make the commitment. But I pray if there's anyone here who would just say, I want to, Jesus, I want to give you my sin and myself. I want to turn from trusting in myself to trusting in Jesus. I pray they do that. Lord, for the rest of us, Would you help us to take off the old man or woman and put on the new man or woman, Lord? Would you help us to be different and distinct knowing that's how we're gonna make a difference? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.